and breed in people! No, I am the father of What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to the Slate Spoiler Special on The Rise of Skywalker, Episode 9 of the Star Wars. I don't know what a nine-part ology is called. a saga is the, the, the official word now, I think. Is it a, a nonology, a nineology? <laughs> right. So, yes. Trilogy of trilogies. The generation spanning, as you say in your review, Sam, um, conclusion, or they say conclusion anyway, to this cycle of the Star Wars saga. Uh, okay, let's introduce our big panel here. We have a group of people as large as the Congresses in the uh, in the Star Wars prequels <laughs> that met to discuss galactic matters. Um, I'll start with Marissa Martinelli, associate editor at Slate. Hi, Marissa. Hello, Dana, from my donut-shaped pod, much like the Galactic Senate. <laughs> We also have Slate's culture editor, Forrest Wickman. Hey, hey Forrest. Hey, Dana. And as mentioned, we have Samuel Adams, senior editor at Slate. And also, you reviewed this movie, so you're going to be our resident Star Wars expert for today. Well, yes. I think I sort of pale beside Forrest and Marissa, but I'll, I'll do my best. I think, I think all have... of you have nerd cred enough yeah, to, yes. to carry me along. Yeah, I should mention that I guess I'm probably the least Star Warsy of all of us, although I have seen every single movie except the second two prequels which and that's just because the first one was so terrible that there was really no no reason to return afterwards but that also means that there's some back lore that I didn't quite get in this movie and I need you guys to explain it to me as we go but before we get into the very twisty plot and many many plot devices and MacGuffins that we have to explain in this movie I want to quickly just go around and get your responses to it Sam I kind of know yours because I just read your review but go ahead and summarize it for me first this movie made me mad it's, it's actually bad, which I did not expect. There's sort of like a grudging satisfaction that I got from the end, but even that is just sort of like having your you know favorite food like stuffed into your face. It doesn't actually feel good <laughs> to be given what I, what I wanted at that point. Just a lot of sloppiness and capitulation and backtracking. I expected going into The Force Awakens that it would be fine, and it was fine, and I liked it maybe a little better than I thought, and The Last Jedi was a big surprise, and then this, I was surprised by how much I disliked it. Forest? Yeah, pretty much the same. I'm sort of most curious what you think, Dana, and I have a guess about the other three of us. The sort of discarded headline I've had stuck in my head is the rise of Skywalker brings false balance to the Force, which sort of gets at what Sam was talking about and the way it undoes the revisionism of The Last Jedi, which I really liked. And beyond that, it's just kind of uninspired, which I could tell from literally the first shot of the movie, which we'll talk about. And Marissa? So I'm probably the most cliche Star Wars fan among us in that I've seen a lot of the Star Wars content outside of the movies, and I think of myself as a mostly easygoing fan. Like, I thought Solo was fine. I hated this movie. Hated, (laughs) hated, hated this movie. I spent the last third of it rolling my eyes so hard I thought they'd get stuck. (laughs) See, I really do need you guys in my corner because it's not that I liked the movie. It's just that I think that my response is probably somewhat similar to Tony Scott's, which I just read about in his New York Times review, which is that he feels a little bit numb and resigned about the entire saga and maybe about Disney and Star Wars itself. And that there's a little bit of a sense of, you know, sort of what's the point of fighting the tide of the 
fan service oriented mediocrity of so much of what's come out of this and other franchises. We can talk also about this last trilogy, right? The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker and what that's attempted to do with what a whole generation of people thought Star Wars was. But it's worth pointing out, and I don't think I've said it yet, that this is directed by J.J. Abrams, who also directed The Force Awakens, right? So he provided the bread on the sandwich of this last trilogy. <laughs> and uh, uh, All too true of a uh, <laughs> metaphor. We're getting into like fan fiction already. One fairly tasty <laughs> slice and then one apparently really stale slice. Um, but to maybe talk also just about what his vision or maybe lack of vision for the Star Wars universe has been over the course of those two movies, right? Because this could have gone in a completely different direction had it been given to someone else. And the idea of giving it back to him rather than to Colin Trevorrow, who at one point was supposed to direct this, seems like a move on the part of Disney that feeds into that resignation that I was talking about. Like, this guy got them into the theaters last time. He's safe. Let's just go with him. Abrams really specializes as a sort of remix artist. He doesn't bring a lot of originality to really anything he does historically, but he's pretty good at twisting things just a little bit. And that's kind of what the Star Wars movies have become at this point is a lot of just theme and variation. There's all these things they have to repeat every single time. Like you have to have a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The crawl, right? Yeah. Then you have to have the big opening title theme in the crawl, which like still gave me goosebumps here. So I was ready to be entertained. Although the first line in the crawl, the dead speak had me started to worry a little bit. And then the first shot of the movie, so, you know, the original Star Wars movie has this famous opening shot where the crawl finishes and the camera is just holding on these stars and then this, like, tiny rebel fighter flies by and then it's followed by this huge star destroyer which just sets up everything you really need to know about this world, which is that there's this tiny rebel force against this giant empire and how are they going to win? And then Force Awakens did, like, a very subtle twist on that that was pretty good. Like, it shows this planet, and then the huge Star Destroyer comes, but it sort of blocks out the planet. So all you see is the silhouette and the shadow of the ship. I was like, okay, pretty good. Like, kind of the same thing as before, but a slight twist. Last Jedi did a pretty good twist where, like, the camera just starts moving like a spaceship itself as soon as the crawl finishes. This one, it just, like, the camera tilts down. There is a planet. It is red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is how a lot of this movie goes. It just it's like, like they the couldn't come up with shot anything. on a sitcom, right? Yes. Like, here's the house they live in. Yeah, I mean, Sam, you used a lot of sitcomy comparisons in your review. So anyway, that's already I was disappointed by this movie. It's interesting to me that the dead speak is the phrase that tipped you off that something might be wrong with this movie as opposed to the other phrase in the opening crawl which is the Phantom Emperor which was deliberately evoking one (laughs) of the worst reviewed and received movies in the entire franchise The Phantom Menace yeah this is now officially the worst reviewed Star Wars movie since The Phantom Menace episode one Sam, you did mention that the opening sequence of this movie was one brief moment that you had a glimmer of hope for it. Can you talk about that opening sequence? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to try not to talk about The Last Jedi too much, but I mean, one thing that movie really did is raise the bar on the series. Like, visually, there were shots in that that were, like, beautiful and surprising and and striking. And one of the things I was really looking forward to in this movie was how is J.J. Abrams kind of going to respond to the challenge that that movie posed to him. And the way The Rise of Skywalker opens, I re- I thought like, oh man, he's really kind of doing this. First, you get this kind of slow motion fight sequence of Kylo Ren going ham on a bunch of dudes in like a snowy forest. And then he, he picks up this little triangular prism thing, which eventually we find out is called a wayfinder. But the whole opening sequence actually takes place with a dialogue too. And then he flies through this kind of glowy red nebula that looks a little bit like he's flying through like a giant space intestine or something and goes to this alien world where he's 
walking under what looks to be this kind of giant floating mountain that somehow is seven feet off the ground but has lightning shooting out from under it. And it's just all this really like cool looking stuff. And it's done without dialogue and it really like strikes a tone that seems like pretty interesting and exciting. Um, and then that was kind of the last time I felt this way <laughs> about this movie. Right, because he's going to visit. And this is like, I guess, a spoiler because the trailers have sort of teased it. But Marissa, do you want to talk about who he's going to visit? He's going to visit Sheev Palpatine, better known as Darth Sidious. Oh, wow. Is that Perhaps his actual first that name? That is his God-given first name. <laughs> So this is also like a succession crossover. Right. Yes. He's better known as Darth Sidious and even better known to the people who know Star Wars from the original trilogy as the Emperor. So that's the Phantom Emperor referred to in the crawl in the first place. They tip it right at the beginning there because our villain for this trilogy, supposedly Snoke, was killed in The Last Jedi. And so in this movie, they resurrect Palpatine, who has been holed up apparently on this planet getting older and more wrinkly, sustained by the life force of all the villains who have come before. Right. And so we basically learned three things, I think. The first is that he was somehow, I think they used the term puppet master, or he was like pulling the strings for all of the villains in the previous movies, which I've kind of get, I guess. It seems a little hazy how exactly it worked. Well, when we find out that Snoke is, like, actually a clone, like, he said, like, I made Snoke, and Kylo Ren actually walks by, like, a big tank of, like, other Snoke bodies. So it's like he just rolled off an assembly line somehow. Well, that seems of a piece with something that comes much later, which is the idea that Rey contains every Jedi who's ever existed inside her in some literal way, right? I mean, it's it's sort of literalized in, in some late scenes where it's not just that the tradition lives on in her because of the teachings that have been passed down, but that somehow they consolidate in their bodies all of these other beings, which seems to me like it points toward that weird eugenicist side that Star Wars can sometimes have. Yeah, right. Or she's able to call on them. But the Emperor tells Kylo Ren that, quote, she, Rey, is not who you think she is, which I guess we can wait to spoil who she is. But it's another, as you might suspect at this point, it's another instance of just like the force is passed down via genetics, which sometimes I'm tempted to go sort of full Godwin's law as you just did, Dana, and say that if everybody's <laughs> powers are predetermined by their genetics and nothing else, it's a little disappointing. And then the other thing he says is that he has this humongous army that, I don't know, Marissa, does anybody have any idea how he conjures up this humongous army seemingly out of the water that's called the final order i guess kind of like the final solution so there's a little bit of that hitler stuff in there specifically it's a fleet of ships that are basically a bunch of death stars but not round because they're all capable of destroying planets they look like star destroyers but they have like death star guns on them yeah this was hazy to me because there is some material outside of the movies about the rise of the first order and what happens after the emperor dies in the original trilogy and how he had a contingency plan, but supposedly it failed. So I can glean no explanation in canon for where this came from. And there's not much in the movie, right? Like, it's not clear who the engineers are and what planets they mined to, like, build these ships. Right. And how it all happened without anybody in the entire galaxy noticing. But the cosmology of this movie as it begins is that Kylo Ren is in charge of all the bad guys, right? Like, having killed Snoke in the last movie, he is now the equivalent of Darth Vader in the universe. The supreme leader of the First Order. Right. And so then there's this separate 
entity that apparently no one was aware of that yeah. was being put together by a man we thought was dead. And built on the planet Exegol, I should think. I didn't. It's hard to get the names of all the planets in this movie, but that is what I'm The Sith I'm, I planet. Sure. Yes, the Sith planet Exegol. Which cannot be found without this like Wayfinder doohickey, which is going to be quite important. In yeah, the, the Wayfinder really becomes what the gems are in the uh, Avengers movies, right? It's the right. object that the everybody's Avengers racing science. around the galaxy trying to find. There's only two of them in existence. And a huge amount of this movie, I would say the first third at least, is spent just you know frantically flailing around the galaxy in search of the Wayfinder. I think it's and, even more than that. I mean, I'm, I'm really curious to hear the people who complain that last Jedi, the whole Canto Bite sequence was this sort of, you know, pointless diversion. I'm really curious what they're going to say about this movie that I feel like is more like 80% fetch quest. It's just all running around the galaxy trying to find this little triangle thing. Yeah, it's very much just a MacGuffin thing. To be clear, like, the, I mean, without rehashing The Last Jedi too much, the pointlessness of the Canto Bite thing was the point. Yes. But let's move on from that. Well, that brings us to what Finn and Poe are doing at this point. We have Kylo Ren on his own little quest. Meanwhile, Finn and Poe are meeting with Messenger, who's telling them that there is a spy within the First Order, who is unnamed at this point. And while they're meeting with the spy, Rey is training with Leia in the use of her Jedi powers. There's yet another unimaginative callback here. So the Wayfinder is one in a way. So just like everything being about getting an important map that tells you how to get somewhere to defeat the Empire is the original Star Wars movie. And it's also The Force Awakens, like J.J. Abrams did it in The Force Awakens. And at least at that point, it was like, okay, we haven't done this for a while. Fun to do it again. And now it's like five years or whatever after The Force Awakens. And it's just like, oh, yeah, we got to get another map to tell us how to get to the thing at the end of the movie. Disappointing. But yeah, so with Ray, we get another unimaginative reprisal where she's just lifting rocks, which The Last Jedi did a whole good, funny bit about how the forest is so much more than lifting rocks. And in this, she's just lifting rocks. That's all it is. The movie did not lose me at this point. I was okay <laughs> with that and the concept that Ray is a physically gifted Jedi who struggles with the spiritual side of the force. Right, so we get like a training montage with her, which I thought was fine. Is she supposed to be on the same planet that Luke was on in the last movie? Is she on the Porg planet? Uh, no, it's not that planet. It's kind of like Endor from the end of Return of the Jedi, but I think it's just a different planet. It is. It's the new Resistance base. Maybe there's only so many different ideas for, there's, you know, desert planet and jungle planet and ice planet, but there does seem to be like a lot of repetition yeah. here i mean like you know jaku is kind of the new tatooine and there's like another you know third desert planet in this one and yeah so it's hard to keep them all straight and maybe not entirely necessary i wanted to spend more time on the planet with the partying elephant trunked dancing people who all seem to be doing the electric slide in their 42 year <laughs> <laughs> celebration yes. i'm excited to get to the star wars equivalent of burning man the other important thing that happens during this uh ray training sequence is that she's training under leia and you know in advance of this movie there had been a lot of hand-wringing about how they were going to finish off uh, leia's storyline without having Carrie Fisher around to film it. As you said in your review, Sam, I thought it worked pretty well. Like, she's a little laconic in a way that you can sort of tell, if you've read anything about the movie at least, that they're just reusing old lines. So but she shot she no footage on this movie? She had no time on the set? No, I mean, she died before they had even named a director or completed the script. So they just found old bits of her outtakes or things that she'd said in previous movies that could be repurposed? Yeah, somehow? I mean, I think it, the reports at least were that it's all sort of leftover Force Awakens. 
yeah. stuff. Although I'm sure there's, uh, I mean, there's probably some embargoed feature that's going to about drop about this in a couple of days, explaining how they did the whole thing. Yeah. But. Yeah, that could have felt much more artificial than it did, mm-hmm. because she actually was an important part of the story of this movie. She wasn't just placed in as decoration or for a couple inspirational scenes. Um, she really was on the ground, kind of d- directing the action for much of the time. Right. She was General Leia. And then at the same time, in the previous two movies, there were a lot of cutaways to Leia sort of closing her eyes and doing something with her mind really hard, <laughs> which was sort of teasing like, oh, yeah, remember, Leia has the force. She's Luke's sister. You know, who knows what she's doing or what she could do with the force. And and I always was hoping that there would be some payoff for all of that in this movie. And we get a little bit of that payoff. We get a glimpse of how Leia also went through Jedi training and stuff. So... By a few minutes in, maybe 15, 20 minutes into the movie, we've revisited the gang. We know what Ray is up to, what Finn and Poe are up to, what Kylo Ren is up to off slaughtering people to get his little Wayfinder prism thing. Um, can you talk about Sam getting the gang back together in a spaceship and sending them out on this mission for the Wayfinder? Right. I mean, one of the complaints about the last movie was supposedly that the sort of core, you know, three friends didn't spend enough time together, uh, although somebody actually did a, a supercut online of all the scenes that uh, Han, Luke, and Leia are together in in The Empire Strikes Back, and I think it's about 98 seconds or something <laughs> like that. So um, there's precedent there, but clearly there was a desire to kind of regroup the friends, so they all get packed together on this rebel base planet. Um, Chewie is there, too. We yes, should Chewie's mention. there, too. Everybody, and you were there, and you were there. <laughs> um, yeah, so they do some very, like, one of the things that really rubbed me the wrong way about this movie is there's this, this really, like, forced banter between them, a lot of which is just kind of people repeating the same line, one character to the next with slightly different inflections, and it's just, like, placeholder humor. Like, it sounds like a joke, but they didn't actually write a joke in yet. Um a jokeoid, as the writer's room term is, I think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they've gotten this message from the spy that the final order is going to rise, that they have, I think it's 24 hours before their sort of big attack, and they're going to blow up a whole bunch of planets. So they have to go retrace Kylo Ren's steps, find one of these Wayfinder doohickeys, and the place to go, the last time anyone was seen, is on this, what I think we've been collectively calling the Burning Man planet, um, yet another desert planet, um, where they go, and there's a big sort of, uh, like, color festival going on. It's the Festival of the Ancestors, celebrated once every 42 years. Uh, Wink, wink, which is also the amount of time since the original Star Wars. They wade through this big festival of these sort of elephant-looking people who are all very, very happy and thrilled about their ancestors. Um, They get, you know, of course, tracked down by the Empire, and they uh, encounter a familiar face. So among the many people and creatures at the Festival of Ancestors is Lando Calrissian, uh, played once again by Billy D. Williams. And there's a very brief encounter that's a little bit unsatisfying in a way that I think tips off many viewers that probably there's more coming, and indeed there is. So we can talk more about Lando later, I think. And then they fall into quicksand, which is, again, just another one of those things that J.J. Abrams already did in The Force Awakens. <laughs> but this time and- it looks like black beans. So changing it up. Oh, is it black? Okay, yeah. It's I black felt like they were. I thought like they were soaking into black bean <laughs> stew gravel. at a Cuban restaurant. Yeah, yeah, like silica gravel or something. Or yeah. Finn uh, gets out a Ray. I have to tell you, I've always and then plummets. 
which to, he never right. tells her, right? That's like, right. The movie never follows yeah, her. Yeah. Is that supposed to, to be a crush about thing? That. Well, because they've been crushing on each other for two movies. or At least he's been crushing on her. For sure, right. Meanwhile, there's, a, I guess, a couple of semi-important things that happen underground. The first one is that they find this Sith knife that is just like yet another MacGuffin. Kind of, um, and it in some way points the way to the location of where the Emperor is. And the important thing about that is that uh, C-3PO can translate it, but because it's Sith, his programming won't allow him to actually like verbalize the translation to his friends, which is a kind of a funny joke, and it gets us to our next location later. Um, and then there's a brief uh, encounter with a giant... Uh, snake or sort of sandworm, which to me was only interesting in that this is the Star Wars movie that's the most influenced by Dune uh, since any Star Wars movie since the original one. There's both the sandworm that uh, Rey learns to tame just as happens in Dune in one of the most famous sequences in in Dune um, in a way that sort of suggests that she's the chosen one. They definitely failed to walk softly. Is that a Dune reference? Walk softly and you won't attract the worm. Yeah. Go I ahead. have no idea whether this could possibly be a Star Trek reference as well, but given that J.J. Abrams has also had some involvement in directing the yeah. Star Trek franchise, to me it called back to a moment in the original series of Star Trek in the famous episode Devil in the Dark where there's this wounded creature. Do you remember? Does anybody remember this? That, that, Kirk that the and Spock creature? go down, Yes, and find this wounded rock creature that's been killing all these people and they discover that it's because it's a mother and the mother is wounded and she's trying to protect her eggs. And there's a very similar kind of moment of empathy where Spock as the empath communicates with the creature and is able to to calm it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's possible he wasn't thinking of Dune, although there is a lot more talk of spice trading in this one and of spice in general, which is something that Star Wars probably took from Dune. Obviously, it was a thing in the real world, too, but that was a very, very popular series of novels that had come out a decade before. The snake is wounded. Ray can sense that it's mentally upset about something and she tells everyone don't shoot it don't shoot it and as she approaches she sees the wound and she reaches out and she heals it which is a concept that was actually very common in the expanded universe of star wars that was thrown out when disney bought lucasfilm mara j can do it kate skywalker can do it but it has not been introduced in the canon since and so it is a brand new concept that not coincidentally, was also just introduced to The Mandalorian in an episode that came out this week. Baby Yoda demonstrates healing powers in the same way. So they (laughs) they really just rolled that out in a coordinated effort. Okay, now we have force healing. It's Jedi healing week in the States. That's right. In a movie that pushes the boundaries of the force in a lot of ways, some of which I think are... Yeah, this one Silly. didn't bother me. I didn't really know about the expanded universe stuff, I don't think, or it wasn't at the top of my mind anyway. And it still seemed like a logical sort of extension of what we've seen people do in the Force. I like it a lot. Past. And it like it, you know, it just reminds people of various religious concepts from our world, I think. It's also a nonviolent use of the Force, yeah. which is nice and refreshing, because mostly in these movies, we either see the Force used in terms of fighting, in meditating and lifting rocks and such, or in terms of like FaceTiming 
from planet to planet. Force timing. Force timing, you might say. We have to mention the force timing incident that happens on the elephant people's planet, where it just seemed to me like the rules were changing so fast about what the force could do. And I realized that when Kylo Ren and Rey are involved, you know, the force goes to the next level and they can do some intense stuff because of their connection. But that moment when they kind of mind Skype on the on the planet and uh, and he actually telekinetically removes that necklace that she right. has on, right? The aliens have given her this almost like a lay in Hawaii or something, this kind of honorary folky necklace. And in this intense conversation that she has in her mind with Kylo Ren, who's off on another planet somewhere, he's able to somehow mind reach through space and yank this thing off of her body, which seemed like such a huge power that it almost seemed weird to me that they ever needed to fight with lasers later on, right? I mean, they can harm each other and touch each other, essentially, without being in the same place. They did set this up in The Last Jedi, because not only do the two characters talk from planet to planet, but there's one scene where Rey is standing in the rain and Kylo Ren gets wet. So this was something that was at least introduced earlier. But there is another annoying thing. Like, so uh, if I can push up my glasses up my nose for a second. (laughs) Push them on up. (laughs) uh, There is a way that even if you are a Star Wars nerd who just rewatched The Last Jedi a few days ago, like I did, this is still a little bit annoying and pushes your suspension of disbelief. Because one of the big twists at the end of The Last Jedi is that, in fact, they weren't force timing with each other sort of uh, voluntarily or via their own connection between each other. But Snoke was doing it as a way of sort of luring in Rey and I guess sort of like tricking them into thinking that they had some special connection together. And then in this movie, we find out, oh, no, 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 they actually do have a special connection together. It's this thing called a force dyad, which basically just means they're the one true pair for each other, I think. Are those words ever said in the movie? The dyad is said a couple of times. We're a dyad in the force. They're like force besties. Basically, yeah, they're destined to and be yet together. worsties because they're constantly trying to kill each it's other. It's a dialectic. Okay, Forrest, save us from the cave where they have fallen and found the Sith knife after falling through the black bean quicksand. Um, get them back above ground and let's let's get them to their next destination because these guys have a lot of planet hopping still to do. Yeah, I, I don't know if I even remember how they get above ground, but we don't need to get too into into the weeds here. The important thing is they end up back above ground on this desert planet, and that's when they encounter Kylo Ren, this time, I believe, in the flesh, not just via force time, not just via uh, teleconferencing. Um, and Yeah, he's like he's actually flown there at that right, point, and he crashes. In his like special edition TIE fighter. In fact, this is one of the best moments of the movie, I think. It's kind of pointless, but there's a brief very good showdown that was also shown in the trailer where he flies straight at her in his special edition black TIE fighter thing uh, and all she has is her lightsaber and she does this backflip over the TIE fight. It's, I mean, it's awesome, right? It's so indulgent. I mean, it's a great scene visually, but the fact that she turns on the lightsaber before she flips is just such terrible strategy. It doesn't make any (laughs) sense. She's going to put an eye out. Safety also, first. Also, mention if Safety all she's going to do is like cut through the strut that holds on the wing. Like you could do that from the ground just as easily as like flipping over top. This is just like a much cooler looking way of doing the same thing. That's yeah, it. it's one of those moments of showing <laughs> off her physical prowess, right, and having sort of a matrix like really cool slow motion flip. Right, and this scene is sort of a force pissing contest between the two of them, where they're seeing who has the most powers, and it leads to after Chewie gets arrested and taken away in this pod he's flying away and then 
uh, Ray and Kylo Ren have this sort of force tug of war over the spaceship where they're both force pulling it back and forth. And then Ray is exerting herself too much and uh, she accidentally shoots lightning from her fingers, which might remind us of the Emperor, the only other character I think we've seen do that, or certainly the character most associated with doing that in the movies. Uh, and she accidentally blows up the transport, which we're led to believe contains Chewie. And can we just briefly say, where was this other transport? Like, of course, Chewie isn't dead. And later, uh, they say, oh, yeah, he must have been in a different transport. Where was the other transport? <laughs> right. Like, As the Star audience, Wars... we definitely think he's on there. There yeah. was no hint that he was not on the ship. Although you could kind of figure they wouldn't kill off such an important of character. But I just wish there was like, and maybe there is another transport in the background, just like something to set up the rug pull, right? Yeah, they should have said an escape pod or something like that, which would have been more believable, right? I mean, if there'd been something within the ship that he could have escaped on, because we all saw him get on it, and then we all saw it blow up. So it's just one of those moments that you have to suspend your... Did he did, he didn't get out of the cockadoody car, yeah. I was really interested in the concept of Ray using Force Lightning. It didn't so much suggest me the Emperor specifically. Oh, it did for me. Although perhaps it should have as much as that being something that the Sith do. Right, right. Something that in her anger, yeah. she let the feelings get the better of her and this is the result and it was destructive. And I like that side of Rey to mm -hmm. actually see her struggling with the dark side because I feel like a lot of these movies, she's being tempted and I never really buy it that she's tempted to actually turn to the dark side. So here we at least saw something internally rather than external forces saying, Ray, join me, take my hand, where she might actually have the potential for the dark side inside her. Yeah, this sequence works. Um, it's also just fucking cool. Like, that's such a fun visual. Lightning from fingers? Lightning from fingers blasting a ship out of the sky. <laughs> sure. And Kylo Ren being like, uh, what? <laughs> Um, if I'm going to be pandered to, it better look cool. And the two of them having this like big, you know, psychic tug of war over this spaceship, like hundreds of feet above them, is like, well, I've not seen that before. Yeah, I have a question about Daisy Ridley and Ray for you, Sam. It's a little bit of a sidebar, but you mentioned it in your review, and you have the sentence where you say something like, "Over the course of this trilogy, Daisy Ridley's limitations have become Ray's obstacles." And I was fascinated, but I didn't quite get what you mean. Like, are you talking about Daisy Ridley's limitations as an actor? Or the way the character is written? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that the two of them are very kind of like molded to each other in this sort of like you know, memory foam way. Like, I don't think anyone comes away from these movies thinking that Daisy Ridley is a sort of all-purpose actress who you desperately want to see in like lots of other things. But I, I think that she has really kind of either grown into the part or the part has grown to her or something else. And her sort of emotional limitations have, have come to me to feel like part of Ray's character. Like she's someone who kind of keeps a lot down, who is has reason to be afraid of kind of just letting her emotions free and, and, and is still kind of coming to terms with or even learning who she is. So and I feel like some of the kind of indistinctness and the way that the Daisy Ridley, for me as, as an actor, kind of comes most alive um, and the sort of physical aspects of the performance, like it's really interesting to watch her like, and also just like cool as shit, but it just like, I enjoy watching her like swing a lightsaber around and like jump over TIE fighters and stuff. Yeah, like, her athleticism is a huge, yeah. huge part of her performance. I think she's the only actor with like a, a personal trainer listed in the credits. Um, and there's definitely like a good investment on the production's part. 
Okay, Forrest, I'm going to throw it over to you to get us to the planet Kajimi, which is the next place that the gang, the Scooby-Doo-like gang and their painted mystery van in space, goes to resolve, among other things, this C-3PO problem that he contains in his memory, the Sith runes and the knowledge that they need. But because it's forbidden language, he has been programmed against exposing it. So how do they solve that problem? Right. I mean, basically, they solve it with uh, one of my favorite new characters in this whole movie, perhaps my favorite character, who is Babu Frick, who, uh, I mean, you guys, please help me describe Babu Frick. (laughs) To me, Babu Frick is kind of halfway between Gizmo and the Gremlins. Like, so it's like Gizmo has maybe had a little bit of snack after midnight or like a little bit of water on him or something. (laughs) And so he's kind of small and like a little slimy and hairy, but still has big eyes. He is kind of cute and disgusting at once in a way I really loved. And I guess uh, Babu is uh, voiced by Shirley Henderson so far as we can tell, though it doesn't seem to be confirmed on the IMDb page or anything because they're holding back certain credits. So Babu uh, hacks into C-3PO and kind of, well, briefly wipes 3PO's memory, although R2-D2 puts 3PO's old memory back into him later. Um, And then we also meet uh, this character, Zori, played by Carrie Russell, who I thought looked pretty cool and was pretty good, but I don't have a lot to say about Zori. Big question about Zori. Why didn't they ever lift her mask? Like, you get an actress like Carrie Russell as recognizable and beloved and... Yeah. You just show a little bit of her eyes? I mean, I, I had no idea it was her until the credits. I think this maybe makes somewhat more sense to people who've been watching The Mandalorian, which has this whole long-running theme where The Mandalorian is this, you know, bounty hunter and and, and Zori is kind of a mercenary. And uh, The Mandalorian never takes off his mask because it's part of this sort of warrior culture where one must never show any vulnerability. I took it as sort of in that vein. I think given the timing of the release and how tied in this is to the mandalorian as those being the big star wars properties right now that's a fair assessment also later in the movie she flips up part of her helmet so you see her eyes and that's supposed to be still not enough to know it's carrie russell did that's you guys true. guess or unless you maybe went in knowing that it i was knew her. that she was in it and so i pieced it together I, yeah. I think you can see like a few sort of telltale strands of hair if you're looking closely <laughs> escaping the helmet yes the so. thing i liked about her character is that it gave oscar isaac's character poe a little bit of chance to express some desire you know it's one of the yeah. moments i mean everybody's always off on this whole series for being so sexless you know at the very most there's a little bit of flirtation but there's just not really any sense of like an erotics running through the star wars universe except for in the last jedi which is super sexy yeah the la- <laughs> which is why the last jedi not to get into it too much but yeah. part of why it stands apart is it, it has hands. some Oof. yeah it's got some some thirst moments and uh being <laughs> someone who has a massive crush on oscar isaac especially since seeing him as hamlet when he wore no pants in one important <laughs> scene <laughs> I was just eager for any moment of sort of some suggestive eyebrow lifting on the part of Oscar Isaac. Of course, I wish it had been in the direction of John Boyega because I would happily Uh be a Finn Poe shipper if this saga would give me any chance to be. But in the absence of that, if he has to be straight, let him make Isaac carry Russell. It's all good. They do introduce like female characters opposite both Finn and Poe in this movie to kind of make sure that you don't think. That they're uh, like gay for each other. You know? Yeah, which again seems like part of this movie's battening down on a, a conservative Star Wars universe. Although, did you notice there was a woman on woman kiss of two completely random characters who we don't know in the final celebrations? I, despite these 7,000 articles touting that <laughs> moment in advance, I didn't notice it at all. <laughs> yeah. I noticed it because I was looking out for it. Yeah, yeah I think Zuri's character, she's fine in that she hints at Poe Dameron having a sordid past as a spice runner. Which 
kind of flavors his character in an interesting way. I did not need them to make goo goo eyes or him to make goo goo eyes and her to have a blank helmet at each other. (laughs) (laughs) Goo goo visor. It really didn't add anything for me. They don't actually end up together. It just seemed egregious in light of how both actors, Oscar Isaac and John Boyega, have said that they were playing romance in the earlier movies and then J.J. Abrams explicitly squashing that. To give him a female love interest just seems like a slap in the face. Yeah, I found it... uh... I, I don't know that I was that mad. I would grade it maybe a little bit more on a curve and say that one slight positive other thing about it is that not only are they the same age, but Carriette Russell is actually like very slightly older than Oscar Isaac. How often does that happen in movies? I'm just generally in favor of Carrie Russell playing characters who clearly seem like they could, you know, kick the ass of the man that they're doing the scene with. Right. So that's always a good thing. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Marissa, you said that your favorite fight sequence in the movie happens here in this Kajimi era of the, of the film. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? And then we'll get them to their next destination. That's right. So as Kylo Ren is pursuing Rey across the galaxy, he comes to Kajimi with his Knights of Ren. And he has Chewbacca on his ship as a prisoner. And Rey is devastated because she thought that she killed Chewbacca. And when she senses him, she goes after him. And while on the ship, she gets a force time call from Kylo Ren <laughs> to be like, hey, girl, my GPS tracker says that you're nearby. <laughs> you up? <laughs> and in continuing their new extra strong connection where they can actually touch each other across distances, although they're not quite as far this time, I guess, uh, they actually have a lightsaber battle while in right, two totally right. different locations. And it's not like the battle in The Last Jedi between Kylo and Luke where you learn that Luke was never actually there and he was just a projection. They make contact. You get these beautiful visuals of the white of the ship with, you know, Kylo Ren is in a marketplace and he knocks over some berries and they spill onto the floor. It's just really, really cool. Yeah, it's a pretty good sequence. And then we learn something very, very important here, The probably the biggest spoiler of the movie, which is that... Ray is who? Marissa. She's a Palpatine. Dumb, okay. dumb twist. She okay, this is one of those moments. It's not Luke, I'm your father. It's uh, I'm your grandfather, I guess. There's actually a moment in the middle of this fight scene where Kylo stops to explain how this isn't actually a retcon of The Last Jedi. And he says, right. well, technically, when I said your parents were no one, I meant that they became no one in order to save you. And it's like it's always good to have like a huge explanation in the middle of a fight scene about why you're technically not rewriting the last movie. <laughs> and it's <laughs> super dramatic. And they were yeah. not no one because at least one of them was played by Jodie Comer, who was not <laughs> no one to me. Killing seeing, Eve, seeing Emmy Jody winner, Jodie Comer as the mom was really one of my favorite just surprises in this movie. And just yeah. somehow I'm extrapolating that character Villanelle. I mean, that that could account for Ray's trauma right there. Her what mom was Villanelle. <laughs> this twist had no buildup. It came out of nowhere. It well, was there's a, like the forest lightning and stuff. But yeah, it, it comes out of nowhere in this movie. Right. right? It like, comes out of nowhere. It was not set up by the rest of this trilogy. Yeah. It was a fan theory on Reddit. And so much of the last act of this movie 
feels yeah. like it was cobbled together out of social media fan theories yeah. and like slash fiction. It's like, Wh- what do you what do you kids want to see? Yeah, we'll put that in. Yeah. It just also doesn't make any effort to explain when or how this could have happened. Did yes. Palpatine have sex? Or when did is Palpatine this, fuck? Is this like a <laughs> like an Anakin Skywalker situation where he impregnated the Force? And the force gave birth. Is it his son? And or, then is those, it his, that child gave birth. Is like, it his what's son happening? or his daughter? I can't even remember. Is it? I mean, but you just imagine. Like, oh, I don't think we know that. Right? I took yeah. it as being his daughter only because I felt a little more of the focus was on her. But it's definitely not established. <laughs> I just, I just, I want the scene where she's like, "Yeah, I hate you, Dad," and you know, I can't believe you're the Emperor of the Sith. I'm leaving. <laughs> it also, Jodie Comer's characters do always have daddy issues. I mean, yeah. Ray's. Main struggle has been that her parents abandoned her and she doesn't know why. And the explanation that, you know, they were nobodies who just left her. I mean, that's cruel and harsh, but life is harsh. Well, it's what happens with Luke, right? Right. But in this case, they left her to keep her safe. And yet the flashback scene we see is them talking to like a Jedi hunter. And they're like, oh, she's not on Jakku anymore. She's gone. And then they're both murdered. And like, what? So no one ever followed up on that? (laughs) They were just like, oh, she's not on Jakku. They said so. Jodie Comer says she's not on Jakku. <laughs> yeah, they were like, I, I, my shift's over. It's just never mind. Yeah. So I have a maybe larger thematic question about this, and it maybe goes to the fact that I'm not super clear on Palpatine and what he represents because I didn't see those second two yeah. shitty prequels. So to what extent is this acknowledgement that she's the granddaughter of Palpatine a betrayal of, you know, the world that Ryan Johnson tried to open up in The oh. Last Jedi where parentage is not everything and it's, there's no midichlorians flowing in anyone's bloodstream and, you know, that we are not only the product of our families but also the product of the world we I mean, make? the answer is that it is 100% a betrayal yeah. of one of the biggest twists. Basically the biggest twist and revision of The Last Jedi, which she is straight up told that her parents were nobody. She searches her feelings in order to confirm that it is true. She confirms that it's true within herself. And then there's even other little things like the last shot of The Last Jedi is this random little boy who has been inspired by the resistance and uses the force a little bit just kind of on his own. Uh, which, you know, raises big questions that are unclear what the answers would be. But it's just a much more democratic and inspiring vision of how people uh, gain power and make change in the world than just saying like, oh, no, 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 you have to have it in your DNA. Yeah, and for me, the issue is not that like The Last Jedi is sacrosanct and how dare J.J. Abrams. I mean, you can make a, a you know pretty good argument that this is not so different from what Ryan Johnson did to The Force Awakens. Right, I mean, he right. clearly in The Force Awakens is like, oh, raised parents are going to be somebody important. And then Ryan Johnson was going to like, ha-ha, what if they're not? <laughs> um, it's just that then being like, ha-ha, but actually they are, is A, like the most obvious off the shelf twist quote unquote that you could possibly make and it also just makes nonsense of both the last jedi and this movie nothing in either movie makes any sense if you know you have this huge just not even like misdirection just straight up like lie in the movie before it yeah it turns all these movies into like she's not she's too she's not <laughs> maybe she's born with it there's also the added factor of maybe she's palpatine <laughs> There's also the added factor of, like, the villain now of all of these movies is one specific guy who's been pulling the strings and... Who has always been the most boring villain of all of them. I mean, that's I mean, maybe a little listen, extreme. But he's Vader having is a, a much good time. Yeah. 
<laughs> defensive Ian McDermott like a little bit. I mean, he has really unlimited power. Yeah, I mean, right. Like, but yeah. I, I don't love the fact that all of our heroes and villains come from the same two bloodlines because what I did like about the new trilogy is that even though one Sith Lord was wiped out, another one rose. And I know that people hate the prequels for all their talk of taxation, but I do like <laughs> the way that they show how, you know, Palpatine is an evil space wizard, but how does he take over the galaxy? By crushing the democracy, by using propaganda, by manipulating the political system. And the idea that after he falls, a new order rises and that there's always evil out there in the galaxy beyond this one person who is, you know, the most extreme version, that was very appealing. And so now to find out that, oh no, it's not just that fascism rises again and you always have to be vigilant. It's literally this semi-eternal being who will always come back and is pulling the strings. This is the moment when the movie lost me. Okay, Forrest, take us to the huge wave planet. So none of us remember what the huge wave planet is called, but it's just a planet with huge waves. I think it's it's basically that planet from Interstellar. I don't remember what planet it is in Interstellar where there's the humongous tsunami waves that just move extremely slowly. And I found it both a little familiar from that and also pretty effective. Like there is some good production design in this movie. The one big new character we meet there uh, is Naomi Aki um, as this character who IMDb tells me is named Janna. Uh, and she is a possible love interest for Finn because, as you were saying before, everybody has to get their heterosexual love interest in this movie, uh, except for the one minor, nearly nameless character uh, who flashes by in the closing scene. And this leads to yet another lightsaber battle. I don't know how many lightsaber battles are in this movie, but I think at least four. Well, specifically, it's on the wreckage of the original Death Star. Yeah. And, it, and it's a, like a pretty well-staged, pretty cool-looking lightsaber battle where Ray keeps sort of doing these jumps over each of the waves that have a sort of like um, wuja, you know, wirework feel to them that I thought was pretty effective. Although uh, I have to say, like the part where she has to like charge into the surf and like just climb one wave after another to get to the Death Star is like exactly unknown. the same thing from Frozen Two. <laughs> yeah, it's like I saw this in a Disney movie like two weeks ago. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. On the wreckage of the Death Star, as this is happening, we see Leia with the Resistance, and she is using the last of the time she has left, it's suggested. For a force time call. For for an extreme (laughs) force time call, where she communicates with her son, Kylo Ren. She says one word. She says, Ben. And Adam Driver's whole face changes, and all of a sudden, he is no longer Kylo Ren. He is Ben Solo, and it is so powerful and moving. But I got to say, it's very funny to me that in The Force Awakens, Han Solo crossed the galaxy looking for his son and pled with him face to face and got zapped. Yeah. And all that Leia had to do was say one word from a distance. All of a sudden, he sees the error of his ways. Yeah, this scene fell a little flat to me. And in fact, the only way they're able to resolve that a little bit is pretty clumsy, which is Ray flies away and Han Solo shows up and starts talking to Kylo Ren and basically just tells him what happened and in turn tells the audience. He says, uh, my son is alive, aka Ben Skywalker is alive. Uh, Kylo Ren is dead. They have a brief conversation to confirm that Han Solo is not actually alive. He's just a memory. And it's a kind of like Dumbledore at the end of Harry Potter book seven kind of thing where his memory is talking to him. It's very weird. I mean, they could have just done a force ghost thing, I feel like. Not not the only Harry Potter book seven moment in this movie. We'll get to the other one. 
<laughs> in a moment, yeah. I think in a galaxy where there are Force ghosts, this was really confusing. Yes. And I don't think they should have made him a Force ghost because part of the problem with this whole trilogy is that nobody stays dead. Yeah. And so for Han Solo to come back, even if it's not really him, it just cheapens his actual death. Yeah. Clarify what a Force ghost is real quick. I know because so, Forrest and I talked about it last night, but in case our listeners don't it's know. It's when former Jedis appear as glowy, hologrammy silhouettes. It's what Obi-Wan Kenobi does in Empire Strikes Back. It's what Yoda does uh, in Return of the Jedi. And now, like, all of the Jedi do in Return of the Jedi Special Edition. Um, so, yeah, it, that's the Force ghost thing. But it's not a memory. It's literally just the spirit of uh, the person sort of materializing in the Force. And that's not what happens to Han Solo here. But just to clarify, that moment that Leia sends the the brain wire to to Ben and kind of converts him back to Ben for a moment, she dies, right? That's the moment when she yes. expends her life force and and dies. That's right. Right. And it's suggested that she knows she's going to die if she does it, which is not really explained, but they had the constraints of the actress dying. So it's a little hand waving there is okay. Right. But it's a little bit, I mean, it sort of parallels like Luke's, you know, force protection thing at the end of last Jedi, where he's sort of like using his last breath and all his energy to, you know, make this one last stand on a different planet. So it, it kind of jibes with that. And, you know, all the Leia stuff in this, I mean, none of it like a hundred percent works, but this is one of those things where, like, I just wanted it to work so badly. Like, Terry Fisher dying was just gutting for me in a way that I really didn't even anticipate. I have a 10-year-old daughter who, like, only wants to see this movie because Leia's in it. Um, and, you know, like, the character needed an ending for her story, and I wanted one. And I feel like that was enough to get me over the parts where it doesn't really work. Yeah. And soon after that, they uh, cut to, you know, Chewie shows up and finds out that Leia has just died. And Chewie just crumples down on the ground. <laughs> And that that moment really got me because there was this realization of I think I was realizing along with Chewie that like all of his old friends were dead. Sorry, droids. Um, and you know, I mean, if some behind the scenes stuff, I mean, the actor who played Chewie has died in between movies right. too. Yeah, right. And so that's present also in Chewie crumpling to the ground. Right, that he is channeling some grief for Peter Mayhew. Yeah. I agree that that moment of Chewie being sad, even oh. though you only see it from a distance and is not punctuated with a close-up or anything, was one of the few emotionally moving moments of this movie to the, me. The cutaways to Chewie always work. I mean, when Han dies in Force Awakens and Chewie cries out, it always. Gets, I mean, Chewie's basically he's a big dog. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, they they <laughs> do say in this movie that they clue you in on how Chewie is maybe the most intelligent of all of them, or at least he's the the best at hollow chess, which I kind of liked. But, he, you know, fundamentally, he was inspired by George Lucas's Alaskan Malamute, you know, more than 40 years ago. And if you're a sap for dogs, you're probably a sap for Chewie. So now we're entering what I would call the last act of the movie, right? We, um, we have the big battle for the ending set up. We've lost Leia. And, um, and we have this emotional ambivalence about what's going on with Kylo Ren, where he seems to be able to be transformed back into his old Ben Solo self, but is also still on the fence and uh, and still has this kind of drive to um, to make Rey his own and to join her on the throne and that, you know, that they will rule the universe evilly together. So, Forrest, I'm going to throw to you for the wrap-up of the end. Right. So, basically, as in the end of Return of the Jedi, we get two sequences simultaneously. We get one big space battle between all of the forces of the Emperor. Uh, in this case, they're the Final Order. Um and all of the rebels. Uh, one slight twist is that uh, there's a recurring theme throughout the movie about how the rebellion actually is larger. They have more sort of allies around the galaxy than the Empire does. So they've put a 
essentially a distress call out to call on uh, all of those people who have been uh, hanging out, waiting for the right moment to join the battle. Um, and then we cross cut between that and a showdown of sorts uh, between Ray and the Emperor. And, you know, I think we know that Kylo Ren is on the way. And again, it's just like the end of Return of the Jedi, where the Emperor is uh, talking to Luke and trying to persuade him to go to the dark side by showing how badly the aerial fight is going and kind of like looking out his window. And in this, the Emperor kind of opens up the ceiling so that they can see that. But it's it's the exact same sequence. Even some of the dialogue is repeated because the Emperor is asking Rey to strike him down, yeah. much like he was tempting Luke, except in this case, he seems sincere. He wants Rey to strike him down so that she, as a member of his bloodline, can rule the galaxy as the new Emperor in this dark force that she's come into. Right. They're having this showdown while surrounded by just like a stadium full of Sith. Who are like maybe cis spirits or maybe real people. It's really unclear. All we know is they're very good at coordinated chants, uh, <laughs> like a great soccer audience or something. To me, they reminded me of a Nuremberg rally or something, yes. right? I mean, they're filmed in that same sort of symmetrical, sinister way. This massed group of indistinguishable people that, that Nazi rally attenders were. It's suggested, maybe even just implied that they're all past Sith because that's how Palpatine has his power, which is such a retcon of how the Sith work, because the whole point of the Sith is that they didn't survive. They, the Sith are a religious order that are like the Jedi. They split off from the Jedi. They feed on emotion, conflict, hatred. And so they kind of didn't work out as an order. And so because you can't really cooperate that way. And the whole point of the Sith is that there's always two. A master and an apprentice. And that's how they carry on because they can't have this big order. So the idea that Palpatine is drawing on his predecessor's power, the idea that they're all there cheering him on, it just doesn't track. Yeah, this movie just becomes more and more hand wavy, I think, as it goes along. I will say that that moment when, and I think you said this is a callback to an earlier movie, that moment when just ragtag vessels from all over the galaxy come and mass in the sky to help them was another. Cards were kind of left on the table because we could have gotten to know a little bit who the weird creatures were in those ships. And it would have been fun to have, you know, a classic Star Wars moment where you saw all sorts of oddball aliens piloting their ships. But it had this kind of Dunkirk thrilling quality of, you know, the real people of the galaxy, the real creatures pulling together to help each other. Yeah, I thought of Dunkirk and then the next thing I thought of uh, somewhat more dishearteningly um, was how almost the exact same thing happens at the end of Avengers Endgame where at the moment where they're about to lose all of the heroes in the galaxy suddenly show up at the exact right moment. And it's it's older than Endgame, but given that we're in the same year as Endgame and these movies are both owned by the same company, like having the rebels be like, on your left, and then show up was... uh, uh, pretty familiar. I thought of it as like the Spider-Man 2 beat, you know, in the moment when he's like sure, knocked right. down and then all the people like rally together like, don't you touch our Spider-Man! Like, <laughs> yeah, but anyway. What was really strange about it is in a movie full of fan service, that would have been a great opportunity to show a lot more characters from not the movies, from the TV shows, from the comics, from the books. Exactly. You want to see, like, Baby Yoda in some sort of <laughs> tiny, <laughs> tiny little spaceship. Or, like, yeah, or, like, I mean, the first kind of big battle in The Force Awakens when it's sort of like, oh, like, women and people of color get to, like, fly ships now, too. Like that And a was- lot of those characters are in the TV shows, and this would have been a wonderful moment to tie them in. 
Uh, God forbid Rose Tico could have jumped into a vehicle of this some kind. This movie did uh, Rose yeah. dirty. Apparently Wedge is in there somewhere. I think I missed that He shot, is in there, yeah. and he actually even gets, I think, a line. But you don't see nearly enough. I mean, if you're closing out a massive saga because supposedly this is the end, why wouldn't you take that moment to pull an endgame moment? Yeah, I feel like as, that as was fan service left on the table. They just needed to fit in Greg Grunberg and Dominic Monaghan, basically. J.J. Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Friends. We didn't even talk about the moment where Donald Gleason confesses he's the spy and yeah. is summarily <laughs> destroyed by Richard E. Grant. I think it's all only all too appropriate that we mm. forgot Hux. Yeah. The eternally forgotten. Poor yes. character. <laughs> Did you see? You guys saw it coming, right? They like they set it up like, oh, it could be Richard E. Grant. I think is the sort of slight misdirection, but I knew it was going to be Hux. I think I didn't care enough to look at <laughs> I think the biggest laugh in the theater, though, when we also saw it together, I think last night, right, was maybe when Hux suddenly suddenly turned and said, "I'm the spy." <laughs> there was just something so so cheesy. I mean, about Donald it. Gleason is great in these movies. He deserved a better death than he got. He went, He's just like suddenly shot. By a superior But is he really dead, Marissa? No one stays dead in any of these movies. (laughs) The dead speak. Uh, So there's another big fight we have to get to, which is, of course, the final laser battle. Yeah. I mean, by this point, Dana, I think you were saying that, like, maybe Kylo is still half bad inside. I think there's maybe some ambiguity about whether he's truly turned to the good side. But Han Solo, Harrison Ford does show up to be like, no, 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 you're good now. And I think from this point on in the he's movie, made the total turnaround. He's, he's basically become good. He's like, he doesn't have his helmet. He's like changed his clothes. And as Marissa, you were saying, Adam Driver has changed his performance a little bit. So he's just kind of softened. Uh, and Adam Driver is, I think, pretty good in this movie as he so often is. Um, but yeah, I mean, he shows up. And so suddenly Ray is not alone. And then, uh, Marissa, maybe you can walk us through the battle a little bit. Kylo has run to raise aid, and he is confronted by, I can't tell if they're the Emperor's followers or they're like the Knights of Ren. Ren. Yeah. In any case, the Knights of Ren. They're they're wearing the, yeah, they're wearing the Knights of Ren costumes. And he's surrounded by what used to be his own forces, and he is unarmed because he threw his Uh, bad guy red lightsaber into the waves planet. (laughs) <laughs> so he, he has nothing to fight with, and he's taking a beating. Meanwhile, Ray is talking to the Emperor. They start force-timing again, even though they're not that far away. And they actually use their connection to have Ray pass him a lightsaber, which is pretty cool. I'm yeah, a big fan of force-timing. It's pretty good. And so he is able to fight his way to come to her aid. But then there's a really a sequence that's almost exactly like what happens in The Last Jedi, where... The Emperor takes both of them and sort of, like, dangles them, so it kind of doesn't matter. And he's like, I have all the power anyway. You two are a Force dyad, which is a concept that has been sort of teased in Star Wars, but never really... I've never heard those words used to it. The idea that there's this destiny and they're sort of the embodiment of dark and light and they have this extreme connection. And he uses it, the Emperor, to restore his withered form... He, like, sucks up their life force, basically, vampirically. And so he's gone from kind of the husk of his former self to being his whole self. And he starts walking around. It's, It's really telling, I think, that we're all having trouble remembering, like... What even happens? In That's the sequence, a very mushy sequence. It's really disappointing. There's, I mean, you kind of hope for a big lightsaber battle or something, but it, it doesn't work that well, I don't think. So yeah, he like sucks up their life force. What he at some point he throws Kylo Ren into an abyss, and Kylo Ren is 
quote unquote dead. <laughs> but as well, Marissa pointed out, getting thrown into a, an abyss in the Star Wars yes. universe is just is essentially like falling in a hay pile or something. It's the worst <laughs> yeah. way to try to kill someone. Yes, Darth Maul survives it. The Emperor survives it. Who else survives it? There are more. Luke survives jumping. Luke survives it. And it, and Kylo claws his way back out after Rey is dead. There are some exchanges between Palpatine and Rey that I think are worth remarking on in this big final showdown and also, of course, the final fate of Emperor Palpatine. So, Sam, do you want to take us through a little bit of that? Well, basically, the Emperor has told Rey, uh, perhaps he shouldn't have mentioned this beforehand and blown his whole plan, but he tells Rey that, yes, his whole plan is for her to be filled with hate and kill him, and then he and all the other thousand Sith who live with him will flow into her, and she will truly become a Palpatine and take over the audience. So I'm sitting there watching this and going, well, clearly he's got to die. She can't kill him. Are they going to Voldemort this thing? And then they completely Voldemort the thing. Like She has two lightsabers now because she has Leia's and, and Luke's. Um, he is shooting his force lightning at her. She deflects it with one lightsaber, then pulls out the other one and forms like a cross, um, shoots it back at him. His electricity just like dissolves him, basically. And then he just kind of blows up. It decimates the whole uh, kind of Sith temple that they've got underground here. The big statues come crashing down and smush all the sort of faceless robe people who have been lurking in the darkness. Uh, And that is uh, presumably the end of the Sith. And where she gets the strength to do this, it comes from when Palpatine says to her, I am all the Sith. She responds, I am all the Jedi. And she's motivated by the voices of Jedi past, who some of whom she's never even met who fill her with inspiration. And some of them are recognizable and even more are listed in the credits. You have Obi-Wan Kenobi, you have Qui-Gon Jinn. Right. You have Mace Windu, Samuel L. Jackson. Jackson, You have Ahsoka Tano, who has never been in the mainstream Star Wars movies, but is in the Clone Wars, and I love her. One very recognizable voice is, of course, Yoda. Yep. Uh, I think maybe Luke's in there. Basically, they're all in there. It's like the whole ending of the movie is is basically, we got to bring out all the toys, all the ships, all the Jedis. Uh, and yeah, and so it kind of kills both of them simultaneously. She's right. dead. Okay, they were really clear about that in the movie. She's completely stiff. She's not dying. She's dead. And Kylo crawls his way out of this hole, and he embraces Rey, and he brings her back to life. Yeah, he force heals her. Which is just insanity and undermines... <laughs> no, wow, I mean you are angry. Well, so Sam and his reviews said that this movie ruins the trilogy that it's in and I would go even further I would say that it totally undermines the entire saga the whole reason Darth Vader becomes Darth Vader is because Anakin Skywalker couldn't save his mother from dying and he was afraid that his pregnant wife was going to die and Palpatine who would become the emperor promises him that he can teach him to stop people from dying and this is an impossible pursuit Right, it's a Faustian evil thing to want, right? right? I think what you're saying is it ruined the prequels, which (laughs) basically anybody above 28 or so would just be like, well, they were already (laughs) ruined. Uh, But I hear you, because basically everyone under 28 or so would be like, oh my God, he ruined the prequels. But Star Wars aside, just a suspense-based universe where death is not meaningful or permanent has no stakes, right? Well, well, in fairness... This is a power you get to use once. Right, because you die if you're... Supposedly, he was giving Rey his life force. Well, wait, no. I mean, Rey did it with the sandworm slash 
But that Cobra. was healing. She and she said, it. like, I gave it a little bit of my life. So presumably, you know, the degree of the healing is proportionate. If you want to actually bring life back to someone who has lost their life, you need to give them all of yours. I think Which the is movie what he was does. really clear that he brings her back to life. They have time for one kiss so that the Raylo shippers can go nuts. <laughs> yeah. And then he dies as a result of the exertion. He basically died to save her. And that's his redemption, much like. Darth Vader saves his son Luke by sacrificing himself. But I mean, just the implications for the universe. <laughs> also, Palpatine kept himself alive, feeding on the power of the Sith. So he was also right in that respect. Like, he really could thwart right. death. It's possible think, to thwart well, he, death. And he's hooked up like, some, by some like little machine with all these like tubes in it. He's like Serious a little Palpatine puppet yeah. on a jib arm or something. It was supposed to be a false promise. It was supposed to not be possible. And pursuing it was supposed to be the downfall of the people who go after it. And it it just I was the, discussed with the, the scene. only the way I can of, make sense of this is like, and the reason it did not drive me quite as crazy is that <laughs> there are sort of new force powers introduced periodically throughout all of the Star Wars movies, and I think there's a. It's not always clear to me which of them are kind of old powers being rediscovered, and some of them, I think, are new powers being developed. And so I could imagine a world where Leia, for example, during her Jedi training, uh, just being like wiser and less sort of uh, rush into battle violent than everyone else, like developed this power and taught it to her son and to Rey later, for example. I'm fine with the healing power. I don't like the bringing the, people back from back the dead the power. Dead I think that lowers the stakes on think, everything across the franchise. I think the reason that didn't bother me quite as much is also that, to me, it was more like somebody who had just died and it was just an EKG. In other words, he gave her just like his last spark in order to give her just enough spark to come to life after she had only recently died. Uh, rather than just like straight up going into a tomb and like raising <laughs> just like Frankenstein shit, yeah. which we know is doomed. I, so I hear you. I think that would be what how the movie might defend itself. I'm not satisfied. I kind of agree with Marissa. We are a I didn't, I didn't <laughs> know about direct opposition. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I even not knowing all of that backstory in the Star Wars universe, I just felt a basic moral repulsion at the idea. I mean, it's just such an ancient idea in history and literature and myth, right? That it's like to to go against the gods and try to bring someone back to life is an evil thing to do. I think that's <sighs> No, I did not expect to become the Rise of Skywalker <laughs> Defender. Uh, I think that is sort of true. And then also in Christianity, you know, the central uh, story of Christianity is Jesus coming back to life. And there's a, a decent amount of Christian imagery in this. And I think in my mind, especially perhaps just as somebody who was raised Christian, like having this character redeem himself by bringing her back to life, having the sort of new Messiah figure of this universe be somebody who was dead momentarily and then came back to life. Like all of that resonated with me in a way that did not remind me of Frankenstein so much, though I like. I think that's a fair connection to make. We've journeyed so far in this uh, galactic travel through the movie, but we have to get a couple of things still talked about. For one thing, the big sort of happy party reunion yeah. scene back on whatever the planet was that's the base that Leia was operating from, right? When essentially this is just fan service central, right? All the characters just basically come together and hug and cry and talk Depends about what their friendship are, means yeah. to each other. <laughs> and uh, 
And then also the um, the sort of teaser at the end as to what the future of the Star Wars universe might hold. You should first go through all of the kisses. <laughs> Marissa, I trust that you are the person who will best remember all of the kisses. Who are the kisses? Poe and Zori? Zori? They don't kiss. They don't, right. There's a Poe tries to get her to kiss. Him. He gives her, gives her a look. He gives her the greatest look. It's a look. pretty good sequence. It's <laughs> like a... Yeah. Can I just break down his helmet. look as yes, as please. a longtime Oscar yes. Isaac <laughs> analyzer? The way, the look he gives her is not just sort of you know, will you kiss me or are we getting back together? He actually sort of jerks his head in the direction of the nearby ship. It's almost as if he's saying like, can we find some sort of <laughs> place in the forest to go get it, it on? It's like, what? are we going to do this thing or what? Yeah. <laughs> um, but she turns him down through her mask, so he is not to be satisfied. <laughs> okay. Wow. All right, Dana. <laughs> Vivid memory of that. Who else, Marissa? We have the exclusively gay Star Wars moment. Do you even remember the name of the one character of here that I think we know? Who she, we know who she is, sorta. Do we? I thought. I mean, were... she's been in the other. Yeah, movies. she was in Last Jedi. It's the actor she's who played the angel in Angels in America. Is wow. Like, I, yeah. I, I can't remember her. Did name. not even pick up on that. She was like a sort of. Number three under like Leia and um, Laura Dern's uh, Holdo. The problem with this kiss is that it is so brief and sort of in the background as part of a larger sequence that you really don't have time to take in who it is. And you have it's it's not a relationship. It's one of those moments that if J.J. Abrams had not specifically brought it up in an interview, then it would have been a nice little surprise. But because he brought it up as a counterpoint to not having Poe and Finn together. It just doesn't really do anything. It's so I mean, sad. And I would pathetic. say if I if I was going in as a gay viewer who was excited to maybe see some hint of that in the Star Wars universe after forty two years, that combined with the complete sidelining of Kelly Marie Tron's character Rose Tico, right? Who yeah. is not coded as gay specifically, but she's not uh, a girly girl female love interest, right? I mean she has a sort of sure. like well, she's tomboyish straight. She's she's explicitly well, straight because she of her. Has some, like, kind of, she's male attracted. She yeah, could sure. be bisexual. I mean, listen, I'm the bi person on the podcast, so <laughs> All there's no, is, there's never any indication that she's interested yeah. in women. Okay, but at the very least, I would say that she is one of the characters who upset viewers of the Last Jedi, right? Who yeah. brought a different kind of feeling, right? Because she's Asian, because she's a woman, and yet not necessarily love interest into the universe. And and she's like ha- a grease monkey, you know. She's exactly. Not, yeah. yeah, yeah. So to have her sidelined in that way, combined with this, you know, just throwing a tiny little bone of the, the lesbian kiss in the background, I mean, I would be really offended. Disney just I, cannot learn to shut up about these things in advance and let people discover them yeah. for themselves, which would be... A moment. Like, I mean, this is, you know, yeah. it's like a legitimately cool thing to have in a Star Wars movie. It's just when you sell this, it's like, finally, some representation. Look out for this thing. And it's like, this is the world's most powerful entertainment company. And they're telling us this is the best they can do. Yeah. I also just think this movie and this trilogy as a whole are bad at romance. Not that the prequel trilogy is anything to brag about. <laughs> but like the original trilogy, Leia and Han are a great couple. And they're actually interesting and in this movie, it's like they can't decide who wants to be with who. There's so much unrequited crushing going on. Finn never confesses his feelings to Ray as it's suggested that he's going to. He doesn't end up with Rose, who explicitly kisses him and says that she loves him in the last movie. There's a lot going on, and none of it's really resolved. The only truly romantic moment is when Ben Solo kisses yeah. Ray, and they have like 30 30- Beautiful seconds before he dies. 
Yeah, there's not a lot of it. And and just, I think we've railed on this movie probably enough. But one last thing I would note is another way of looking at everything we've just said is that, like, the white people get to kiss and no one else does. Given if we're really grading all these things on a curve, it would have been kind of a, a little bit maybe exciting to have, like, one of these possible interracial relationships. And instead, Rose and Finn just, like, get their platonic what this movie ends with, it's not the last shot, but what is almost the last shot of the movie is just a big group hug. Right. <laughs> with uh, what? It's Poe and Finn and Ray, I think. And Chewie. Chewie? Is yeah. it four people? I think it's just a big, yeah, it's just a big pylon of feel good coziness, <laughs> which, you know, I guess if you really did just come to this to see those characters and feel good about them, I guess could be a satisfying ending. But yeah, it feels very sitcom as well to end on a group hug. We do, though, get one little coda after that, which may also be some sort of gesture at where the universe might go next, which is Ray taking a solo trip to Tatooine to uh, Luke Skywalker's home planet. Do you want to talk about that for us? Sure. Each of the previous two trilogies have spent more time in Tatooine, and I think each of the previous two trilogies end at Tatooine watching the suns go down. Which you don't see here. You don't see the two suns. Uh, no, I think it's I think it's the last shot of the movie again. I could be wrong. It does end on the two suns. Okay, it yeah. does? It's basically that they all have the same last shot, more or less, uh, as I recall it. So specifically, she goes and she buries Luke's and Leia's lightsabers, which... As somebody who has a lot of attachment to those characters, I found somewhat moving. Um, and then... She sees their space ghosts, right? Force ghosts. <laughs> well, someone asks her space what her ghosts. name is. And she says, I'm Ray. Oh, right. And it's a callback to an earlier point yeah. in the movie where someone asks her her family name, and she says, I don't have one. And she's since learned that she's a Palpatine by blood, and she's gone through this whole identity crisis. And so she looks off into the distance, and she sees... Space ghost, you know, Luke, Luke and, and Leia. Leia. Leia's and wearing her nod, right? white hood from A New Hope, but it's like Carrie Fisher at the end of her life, which is a nice little tie-in. And yeah. she says that her name is Ray Skywalker, which I gotta say, like, if that's a nice moment, yeah. but it really brought to mind the scene in Solo where Han's like, I don't have a family name, and someone's like, Your name is Solo now. It kind of robbed it of meaning. Like, you can pretty much make up your own name in the Star Wars galaxy. Yeah. Right. I think I thought of it as a sort of like there's a there's a sort of chosen family theme going throughout this where at some point I think the emperor even says like those people aren't your real family or something like, in in other words, all of the good rebel people that she's tried to be with. And so, yeah, at the end, she's like, no, those people are my family. That worked pretty well for me. It didn't work for me. And and we should say it's so and thus Skywalker uh, who, it turns out, was Rey Skywalker in a way, has risen, including from the dead. This, to me, brought back the idea of Luke in Return of the Jedi, where he refuses to turn to the dark side and he says, I am a Skywalker like my father before me. I'm a Jedi like my father before me. And sort of explicitly aligning himself with his family. And to me, like we never really get to know Rey's parents. And so the rejection of the name Palpatine really reads as a sort of rejection of them also even though she's had sure. this beautiful dream of connecting with them the, the whole trilogy I, I just don't understand why you would cast that aside yeah. can't she be the first or the second good good Palpatine why does she have to be a Skywalker I guess I think I probably would have felt a little better about the ending if she had just said just Ray. you know I mean I think I still like the idea that's of how her, Ryan Johnson would have ended yeah of her embracing yeah. her her scavenger status of somebody who's a self-made Jedi. Right. Yeah, it's this weird kind of back and forth that it goes where 
you know, the last shot I said, you know, you're no one. Who you are doesn't matter. This movie says, you know, oh, actually, it matters that she's Palpatine's daughter. But then there's something stronger than blood. And then she gets to, like, pick her own name. So it's like, it doesn't matter who you are. Actually, blood matters a lot. But then actually, there's something else that matters more than that. And it's like, you got to pick a lane. Okay, we've been talking practically as long as these guys were leaping around the galaxy looking for their triangle thing. But let's just glimpse at what Star Wars might become in the future, since this is the end of this particular saga. But obviously, um, given how important the franchise is to Disney, is not the end of Star Wars. So what do you guys know about what's happening to Star Wars next, and what do you surmise might happen next? I mean, I think there's a lot of question marks. At one point, it was announced that Ryan Johnson was going to get his own trilogy, and there's there's been a lot of light pushing on the brakes around that lately, and I think we don't really know what's going to happen. Maybe Disney's watching the box office of this movie and seeing how it does relative to The Last Jedi or something. Um, the Game of Thrones guys were going to do a movie or movies for a while, and then now they're not doing that. We have The Mandalorian going. I think that outside of The Mandalorian, I think there's basically a lot of question marks, right? There is more coming up on TV and right. specifically filling in the gaps rather than looking forward. So Disney Plus has a live-action Obi-Wan Kenobi series in the works, and then Star right. Wars The Clone Wars, my beloved show, is coming back for a sixth season. But both of those are set long before The Rise of Skywalker. So we're really looking backward rather than looking forward. Right. It feels to me what happened, and some of this is... I don't think anybody knows like all the ins and outs of what's going on like inside Lucasfilm, but it definitely feels like the reins have been jerked yep. since you know some point in the last Jedi. I think the you know uh, Lord of Miller getting fired off Solo and and Ron Howard being brought in to basically do something totally uninteresting, which kind of killed the idea of all the spinoff movies. Abrams turning in this thing that just feels like don't screw it up. Ryan Johnson is now kind of saying like, well, I might be doing three movies. I might not be like your guess is as good as mine. I'm waiting to hear. And the fact that Disney seems to be maybe setting up like Marvel's Kevin Feige to do a, a, a trilogy instead, who's another just kind of, you know, like franchise guardian. The fact that there's also seem to be turning their attention away from movies entirely and towards um, Disney plus where they can keep all the money and not have to cut theater owners in and, you know, expectations are lower because you only have to hold people's attention for half an hour at a time. Um, it really just speaks to like a huge shrinking of of the ambitions for this whole franchise. And even though, you know, I kind of like The Mandalorian is just like something to do with, you know, 30 minutes at the end of the day. It really feels like we've gone from this hugely kind of ambitious and exciting new thing to really just we're just going to kind of you know, spackle in uh, some of the the gaps that you really didn't care about beforehand. Yeah, less filmmaker driven, fewer big risks. That seems like where we're going, and I'm not that excited about it. All right. Well, on, <laughs> on that undisputed, the dark note. side has truly won this conversation. <laughs> Okay, well, I hope whatever sputtering gasp there is in the future of more Star Wars content, you guys will come and help me understand it. Thanks for listening to this Slate Spoiler Special on the Rise of Skywalker. Our engineer today was Asha Saluja. Our producer is Rosemary Belson. If you want to write us about future movies or TV shows you think we should spoil, you can always drop a line at spoilers at slate.com. For Forrest Wickman, Samuel Adams, and Marissa Martinelli, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. 